0: everyone and welcome back to the front line with joe and joe joe pasillo as always joined by joe resinello and once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content, not just the front line with Joe and Joe. And if you don't mind, you'll follow Joe and I on social media, help us out. We're at the Frontline TV on YouTube, the Frontline TV. You could like, subscribe, share, and do all that fun stuff. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be joined by David Penault. And David has written the foreword to a book on Charles de Foucault. Now, many of you out there uh, might not have heard of David. I'm gonna give David a brief bio. And we and Charles de Foucault someone I had never heard of before um, I found out about this book. Um, and that's exactly what we're gonna talk about today because this man has been canonized a saint. Um, so just by way of a bio, David Pinault received his BA in French literature from Georgetown University, and his MA and PhD in Arabic and Islamic studies from the Department of Oriental Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. His research interests include comparative Christology and the status of Christian populations in Muslim-majority societies. Among the countries in which he has done field work are Yemen, Egypt, Pakistan, India, and Indonesia. A recipient of Santa Clara University's Public Intellectual Award and the Britako Award for Teaching Excellence, he has served since 2007 as director of SCU's inter- interdisciplinary program in Arabic islamic and middle eastern studies um david is also now he wrote the forward to this book but david is also the author is uh, the author of numerous books including uh his novel providence blue and the crucifix on mecca's front porch a christian's companion for the study of islam which david in a little bit we could talk uh, or towards the end of the show we could talk a little bit about those uh david penalt welcome to the front line with joe and joe Thank you
2: so much, both of you, and it's really a great privilege and an honor to be here.
0: You're welcome.
1: David, we always start with the prayer, uh, because God knows I need prayers. Uh, In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin, a virgin's our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. Well, mother of the word and Car, I despise not our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. David, I'll be honest. Um, I was very excited when Ignatius passed this book on to us because I do know who Charles DuFoucault, he's a radical guy, and I love radical saints. It doesn't get more radical than this man. Um, so I, I you know, as Joe said, uh Pope Francis is canonizing him or he's in may of 2022 uh when this airs he will be a saint um what attracted you to him i know what attracts me to him because he was a radical radical man uh so let's talk a little bit about who he was and why did you have you know an attraction to this saint? because let's be honest there's certain saints that appeal to certain people this man does appeal to me his life and how he changed it and how he moved forward
2: yes well thank you in fact joe um, Father Foucault is someone uh, with whom I feel I have had a kind of spiritual relationship um, for many years. And I'll talk about that in just a minute, but I'll just say briefly um, for our listeners who may not be aware who Father Foucault is, um, he is someone who was born uh, in 1858 in the French city of Strasbourg, uh, born into a very devout Catholic family. But the first point of what I would say is accessibility uh, in appreciating and understanding his life. And I mention accessibility because of the fact that for many of us, um, you hear the word saint and you figure, okay, someone admirable, but what do I have to do with that? It's way beyond my reach. But I would say in terms of making him accessible to us today in the 21st century, It's important to realize that even though he was born quite a while ago, 1858, nonetheless, French society at that time was being uh, disturbed and challenged by many social currents that we would recognize today. Uh, When he was growing up, Darwinist materialism was making its impact felt on society. Uh, France, like other European countries, was very much being challenged by what some people call scientific atheism. And um, the forces of secularism at that time were also challenging the authority of both the church and government. Uh, Net result was that uh, Charles Foucault was someone who um, fell away from his faith early on. And he went through a a long, hard struggle to rediscover that faith. In fact, um, he went into Uh, The Academy of Saint-Seul. saint is um, sort of the equivalent of West Point here uh, for the purpose of a military career. Um, But partly because of the fact that he had lost his Catholic faith. um, He did very poorly, actually, um, at the military academy. He found himself um, constantly distracted and bored, both in the classroom and then also out on the parade um, drill ground. Uh, graduated near the bottom of his class and what's interesting is that what um, sort of got him reoriented and the first step and what led him back to what he later called the reversion to his own Catholic faith, what led him back, the first step was the fact that um, there was a call to jihad, a term that we associate with the notion of Islamic holy war, a call to jihad in Algeria, which was part of the French colonial empire at that time. So uh, Father Foucault's regiment was called up, uh, and he went to North Africa, to Algeria specifically. And there, what he found was that uh, the discipline of combat actually helped to shape him for the better. He was responsible for a troop of soldiers under his command. and the discipline of having to go out on constant desert patrols, all of that served to steady him and to to give him a sense of structure that he badly needed. And at the same time, his exposure to Islamic society, to a very traditional um, Muslim social structure where people are praying publicly five times a day and so forth, he said later that that was a reminder to him of the presence of God. And what it did when he returned to France, that led him back to the treasure, to the heritage of his own Catholic faith. Not only does he rediscover his Catholic faith, but he ultimately becomes ordained as a priest and then returns to Algeria, to French North Africa as a military chaplain. Now there's much more I could say here, but I'll just say that um, for myself, I, I've been aware of um father foucault's life for many decades and it's partly because the fact that um, one thing that i guess i can say uh you know in a very humble manner i want to just emphasize one point of contact is that um like father foucault i'm a catholic who worked professionally i've worked professionally in muslim societies and the contact with muslims actually served to uh, deepen and strengthen my own Catholic faith.
0: Thank you for that. David Pinalt is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. So we are discussing Charles de Foucault. Uh, David has written the forward to the book written by Jean-Jacques Cantier. Um, so uh, this is going to be, when we say we're going into the breach, uh, we're definitely going into the breach, especially like Joe said, um, leaving aside which is, I think, is very important. Like you said, you know, having you know, living in a Catholic missionary or Catholic priest in a Muslim country, and we're going to get into what happened to Charles de Foucault, and obviously that's been your experience uh, as well, David. Uh, let me let me just get some. Let's get some brass tacks as far as sainthood is concerned. Uh, every saint has to, has two has to have two validated. Um miracles. Okay, so with Charles de Foucault, you have one was validated by Pope by Pope Benedict the Sixteenth in two thousand five, and the other by Pope Francis in May of twenty twenty. Uh, so briefly describe uh, what those two miracles are, if you don't mind, David.
2: Certainly, um, the first one uh, dates to nineteen eighty four, um, and involved an Italian woman named Giovanna Pulici uh, from Milan, and um, she was. Um, Uh, stricken with very serious case of bone cancer. And um, it turns out that her husband was a longtime devotee of Father Foucault. And he and his family and friends prayed for her. And um, she experienced a miraculous remission of this very serious case of bone cancer. And after investigation, um, it was agreed, as you mentioned, the papal investigation concluded that it was linked to the direct uh, intercession of Father Foucault on her behalf. Um, the second case, uh, more recently, uh, and even more dramatic, uh, dates from uh, November 30th, 2016. And um, I mentioned the precise date because of the fact that um, November 30th, 2016 was the eve of the centenary, the 100 year anniversary of the martyrdom of Father Foucault in Algeria. And what happened was that in a uh, parish church in France, um, a church that had a, uh, actually a special devotion to Father Foucault, um, the members of the congregation were preparing to celebrate the next day a um, a, a special um, uh, observance in honor of the centenary of the martyrdom of Father Foucault and there was a, um, a workman involved in chapel restoration, so working inside the church, he was working up near the ceiling and he fell over 50 feet and when he landed he landed right on a wooden post that punctured his abdomen Oof and um, just, just below the heart, actually, okay? And um, uh, it, it was feared that he was just gone. I mean, you know, and, um, and what happened was that, you know, he's, he's you know, taken him to the hospital and so forth, but um, instantly the whole parish mobilized, you know, praying to Father Foucault um, on behalf of this young workman who had had this grievous injury, And again, right right on the eve of the centenary of the martyrdom and um, the young man um, who people thought would die, he made a complete recovery and very, very rapidly. So that was the second miracle that was attributed
1: by the Vatican uh, to the intercession of Father Foucault.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that David. Joe Rusanello.
1: It's important for people to hear those things because the saints point us to God and miracles are real. I mean like like a lot of times, you know, from the miracles I've read about, not particularly that are attributed to Charles de Foucault, but, you know, medical scientists will say there's no scientific explanation for why this occurred. Like, I'm not going to, you know, say it's a miracle, but what I am going to say as a doctor, I can't say how this happened. This is not what we learn in, you know, in school, you know, it's a miraculous event. And I think people have to, to um, you know, that's a validation that this man is in heaven and, you know, it it it's it's moving clearly but you mentioned uh david that he was killed um you know he went there after you know his service in the military he becomes a priest and then he becomes a hermit and he serves in algeria and the very people he was taking care of uh spiritually speaking wound up killing him i believe that was in 1916 talk a little bit about that um because it's interesting his work and this is where saints come into play no one knew what he was doing but after the fact similar to like the little flower no one knew her while she was in the convent but then you know the fruit of that work the world begins to know who he is talk about how he died and then how he became you know basically uh you know known to the world
2: yes so yeah excellent question joe so I should mention let's pick up on his life story again. He returns to North Africa and when he does, if he had wanted to, he could have had a very comfortable perch. He could have served as a essentially as a parish priest in the city of Algiers, the capital of uh, French Algeria, which would have been right in the Mediterranean and he would have had um, you know access to the kind of material comforts and so forth that you know, the bulk of the French colonial population had there. Instead, what he chose to do was essentially to become a military chaplain um, uh, who worked with, for example, um, the garrison at Béni-Abbès. Béni-Abbès was the um, headquarters, basically, for the Légion Étrangère, the French Foreign Legion, okay, on the border of uh, French Algeria and Morocco. And what he does is, he chooses to minister first of all um, to the enlisted men, to the soldiers in the French Foreign Legion. And what he does, he travels around on foot. Get very vulnerable, actually, because you know Algeria is a you know an enormous country, and at that time, uh, lots and lots of um, uh, military and uh, other dangers there. He travels around on foot ministering to the soldiers at various outposts in the Sahara, in the desert. And um, what's interesting to see is that by temperament, what he preferred, his favorite activity was to be alone in prayer with Christ. Uh, in a small chapel in the desert, He would, whenever he could, he would be in solitary prayer before the altar in the presence in the real presence before the real presence of christ in the eucharist before the monstrance on the altar he would spend the evening there and he would often fall asleep before the altar curled up as he said like a dog like a dog for christ that was his preference for him what the what the sahara represented was a kind of um vast, sand-swept landscape of prayer. What he loved was solitude, being alone with Christ. But at the same time, and this to me is one of his most heroic achievements, I talked about discipline earlier, he made himself available to Christ via service for others. In other words, he let it be known that whenever anyone, Christian, Muslim, whoever, anyone who needed his help he was available. So people would break in on him and say, Hey, you know, um, there's a soldier who's been wounded. You know, he, he, he wants the sacraments. Can you come now? Or someone who would just need spiritual counseling, or, you know, people who were poor, you know, who needed food or something like that. So he was constantly being interrupted and he willingly, willingly gave himself to that. Okay. And I cannot emphasize that enough. People ask me when you think about Father Foucault in relation to sainthood, what does that say to you? Well, my response would be, Father Foucault is a reminder of the fact that when we talk about sainthood, we're talking about essentially a daily discipline. It's possible for all of us to grow in sanctity. You know, uh, sainthood is not something that's just like an overnight condition that you're born with or something like that. No, mm. you, you look at his life, you know, and he came a long way from the condition he had been in spiritually when he was back at the military academy, where, as I mentioned, he had lost his faith. And in fact, he had become quite the sensualist, um, champagne guzzler, chasing after women, et cetera. And um, he was someone who realized, you know, that as Kierkegaard says, purity of heart is to will one thing. And that one thing for Father Foucault is that intense relationship with christ in the real presence of the eucharist and then energized by that making himself available for others okay so now the other thing to mention here with regard to his life and how he died is that uh, when father Foucault would offer mass for the soldiers in the foreign legion um, in these various outposts he would attract a number of people including muslims who were very impressed with him. Actually, they referred to him as Sidi Marabu or um, the Lord Holy Man. Okay, They were very impressed with his piety. So there were uh, a number of, of Muslims who were fascinated by him and enjoyed talking with him. And his style, I should mention, um, Father Foucault's style was not trying to browbeat people to convert. Um, he, In a sense, he followed the example of Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. In other words, as Father Foucault himself said, my hope is that living among Muslims, that people will say, wow, this intense piety that I can sense in this person, this intense devotion, if this is what the servant is like, what must the master be like? to make them more curious about coming to know Christ. And so uh, he was someone who was constantly making himself available. But at the same time, it was in a very hazardous political landscape. In 1916, the year of Father Foucault's death, this was during the period, as listeners may recall, 1916. This is during the First World War. And at that time, Germany, which was opposed to France and Britain, Germany was allied at that time with the Ottoman Turkish Empire, okay? And so Turkey at that time allied with uh, Germany, Turkey was the seat of the Caliphate, okay? The Caliphate is, if you like, the um, political and spiritual capital of the Islamic world. And so, at the encouragement of Germany, what Turkey did was to encourage jihad, as I mentioned before. Jihad liter- jihad literally means um, struggle. Um, uh, it occurs in the Quran most commonly in a phrase like "jihad bi sabil Allah" uh, or struggle in the path of Allah. Now, um, jihad can have two meanings. It, 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 the um, one sense is what Muslims would refer to as interior jihad to purify oneself, but the more commonly known aspect of jihad in the larger world is um, combat, physical combat against the enemies of the faith. And so uh, the Turkish empire encourages Muslims throughout the colonial possessions of France and Great Britain to wage war against the unbelievers. And so uh, during the time that uh Foucault was living in Algeria in the French colony of Algeria in the last few years of his life okay Okay. holy war has been declared against non-believers like him and in fact in 1916 what happened was a group of jihadists attacked the hermitage monastery where he was living took him captive and when they held him prisoner demanded and this is something that uh, Jean-Jacques Antier mentions in the biography. They demanded that he recite the Shahada, or the Muslim testimony of faith. He refuses to do so. He adheres to his Christian faith, and they kill him. So, um, right, you know, right outside the monastery where he had been, the hermitage where he had been lived.
0: Thank you for that. David Pinalt is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. And we're discussing, uh, we're discussing the book, by on Charles de Foucault written by Jean-Jacques Antier, Um, and David, as I said, wrote the forward to that. So we're way, way, way in the breach on the Veritas Catholic radio network, 1350 on your AM dial. So you, you wrote the forward to the book, David, we have a few minutes before the break. Um, so before his death, Uh, Charles de Foucault uh, had to face some spiritual obstacles, um, kind of akin to what we as Catholics face today. Can you elaborate on that idea?
2: Yes. So what's interesting is that, as I mentioned earlier,
0: um,
2: as a young man, Father Foucault had lost his faith and found himself um, constantly pulled about by various impulses and distractions, um, dissipated himself really uh, in terms of um, a, a lot of drinking, um, a, a lot of overeating too. I mean, it's it's amazing to think. When you look at photographs of him um, as a hermit and um, as a missionary priest, you no, know, he's, you know, just really, you know, thin, emaciated, gaunt, you know. But when uh he was at the military academy, you know, he really had packed in a lot of pounds there. Okay, And he was aware of the fact throughout the rest of his life, you know, he felt a strong sense of penitence, feeling like, wow, I've got a lot to make up for for those years that I wasted. Okay, and um, And he, you know, really strove to devote himself to Christ and to make that devotion manifest through being available to others. You know, so he had to contend with that. You know, he, you know, he, you know, you know, repeatedly referred to himself as a sinner, as a penitent. At the same time, um, he also, I think, had to sort of struggle, as I mentioned earlier, um, with his own temperamental inclination to want to be alone, because once he had made this conversion, you know, he felt that you know, each day wasn't long enough to get in as much prayer as he wanted. He really took comfort in that divine presence of Christ, especially praying uh, at the altar before the monstrance containing the consecrated host, the real presence of Christ. Um, But he was also aware that there were a number of political and social issues at that time that he felt he could make a difference with. And I'm talking particularly about um, slavery. Now, one thing for viewers to be aware of is the fact that um, although France had outlawed the practice of slavery throughout its colonial empire. Nonetheless, Islamic Sharia, Sharia refers to uh, Islamic sacred law, Sharia to this day still permits slavery and enslavement. And so um, during the time of Father Foucault's presence in Algeria, uh, there were um, a number of slave raids uh, conducted by Arab and Tuareg Muslim tribes against the um, Black minority population in the southern part of Algeria. And that's one of the reasons why Father Foucault chose uh, to make one of his um, spiritual headquarters the village of Tamanrasset, deep in the south of Algeria, living among uh, impoverished villages who were often subjected to these slave raids. And Father Foucault was um, constantly after the French government to um, uh, increase the security for these villagers and uh, to uh, strike back at the slave raiders. And he himself um, ransomed uh, a number of slaves and then made sure to uh, look for employment for them as freedmen. So uh, he was someone who was constantly busy on behalf of others facing a number of challenges.
0: So David, let me have a quick question. Um... I guess we're you know, just in the couple of minutes before the break. Just to um, off, somewhat off topic, but not completely. But but let our audience know we're constantly hearing in America, constantly, constantly about slavery, constantly about slavery. Slavery exists to this day. Yes. In the Mos- in the Muslim world.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, see, what happens is that um, because of the fact that. Uh, uh, Sharia. And this is a fascinating topic, a very important one And so, since Sharia has never has never repealed uh, slavery as such, it's up to each individual Muslim country um, to do the repealing. And so, for example, um, I mean, it's it's good to keep in mind because I've often had people, you know, come at me and talk about the sins of the West and Western civilization. And, and God knows, of course, you know, we have plenty of imperfections. At the same time, it's important not to romanticize other countries. I mean, um, Saudi Arabia did not repeal slavery until 1962, okay? In countries like Mauritania and Northwest Africa, it wasn't until the 1990s, okay? (laughs) Right? Um, And so individual Muslim countries have, in fact, repealed slavery. But here's the kicker. Because of the fact that in Sharia, it's never been officially repealed, That's why when you get extremist groups like ISIS, and I suspect that most of our listeners have heard of ISIS or the Islamic State, um, listeners may be aware of the fact that in the so-called caliphate established by the Islamic State in parts of Iraq and Syria just a few years ago, they reinstituted the practice of enslaving people that they decided we're non-Muslims,
1: okay? David,
0: let's leave it there for a second, okay? We're just gonna take a quick break. David Pinault has written the foreword to the book uh, on Charles de Foucault, who is a Catholic saint. David has also authored a number of books, including Providence Blue and The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch, A Christian's Companion for the Study of Islam, which in the next segment towards the end, we're definitely, we want to let all of our audience members, David, know a little bit about those, the other books that you've written also. Okay, so we'll make sure we leave some time for that. Um, in the meantime, stick around. We're going to continue the conversation on Charles de Foucault um, at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe and Joe Racinello on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith in the New York City metropolitan area. So, uh, and please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. So this is a fascinating conversation. Charles de is a fascinating Catholic saint. Um, So we're going to continue it on the other side of the break. Stick around.
3: Listen to all five of our original Veritas shows. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank, where Bishop Frank Caggiano talks about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. You can hear the Frontline with Joe and Joe every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talks to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Thursday nights at eight o'clock, tune in for the only late night talk show on Catholic media anywhere. It's not that late with Liv Harrison. And at noon on Friday is Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Right after that at 1230, you can hear the Focus on Veritas, where we put the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at veritascatholic.com or on the mobile app.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello, Way in the Breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network with uh, with author David Penault. We are discussing uh, a recent book written by Jean-Jacques Gantier on Saint Charles de Foucault. David wrote the forward to that, and David is also the author of numerous books, including Providence Blue and The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch, A Christian's Companion for the Study of Islam, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And with that, I'm going to hand it back over to Joe Resinello.
1: David, why don't you continue with what you were talking about? It was fascinating. I, I want to hear a little bit more about that. I'm sure our listeners do as well. Yes,
2: so we were just talking about the fact that Father Foucault is someone who, <clears throat> while living as a hermit and missionary priest in um, French North Africa, in the country of Algeria, he had to deal with the challenge of continuing slavery and slave raids conducted by Muslim, Arab, and Tuareg slave raiders uh, within this territory. I mentioned before that um, the French government had outlawed slavery, um, but it was not always as strict as it might have been in enforcing this, partly because of the fact that sometimes um, in this vast geographic area um, encompassed by Algeria, Um, sometimes the French government would have to enter, for example, into a kind of temporary alliance with one tribe or another. Um, And so what Father Foucault was constantly doing was reminding the French government of its moral obligation. The French um, often referred to what uh, what they called their civilizing mission in their colonial possessions. And Father Foucault Uh, was someone who believed in the French colonial mission, but he said, we've got to live up to it. If we feel that we have this um, outstanding civilization to offer to the people living living under our governmental control, then we have to uphold our own ideals. And so um, he was someone who really pushed for um, protecting the most vulnerable people, including um, Black villagers, in the southern part of Algeria who were subjected again and again to slave raids by um, Tuareg and Arab raiders that I mentioned. And I also mentioned that Father Foucault himself um, would, um, uh, whenever he could, ransom slaves himself and offer them employment as freedmen. And I was also saying the fact that um, one of the um, ongoing challenges for the Islamic world in fact, I'll just mention that there are um, Muslim reformers and intellectuals today, you know, who call for a re- you know a reformation in the Islamic world. Um, there's, for example, um, a Muslim intellectual named um, Abdullahi Ahmed Ibn Naim, and Naim is a Muslim scholar who says that one of the things that uh, Muslims really w- we, what we really need to do is to push for um, Sharia, basically for any, any aspects, what he says, any aspects of Sharia that run counter to the United Nations declaration of universal human rights, that those aspects should be canceled. And so he said that those aspects of Sharia that violate human rights, either in terms of the dignity of women or in terms of um, freedom of conscience, in terms of the rights of minority religious populations, people who are not Muslim, and the whole question of slavery, okay, permitting slavery, that those three aspects of Sharia, he says, should be repealed so that women can be given greater dignity and greater rights, so that um, religious minorities, non-Muslims can be given greater rights, and so that Slavery will be officially declared um, invalid and um, uh, completely impermissible. Why that is um, something that uh, is still a live issue is reflected in the fact that, as I was starting to mention earlier before the break, when the extremist group um, known as ISIS or the Islamic State, when they Carved out for several years what they called a caliphate of their own in parts of Iraq and Syria. They reinstated enslavement okay, directed against groups that they identified as non Muslim uh, most specifically a minority population known as the Yazidis and. Um, the uh, enslavement that they practiced against groups like the Yazidis was uh, truly despicable
0: yeah i wish more people would actually point that out david Penault joining us here at the front line with joe and joe joe Pasillo and joe resinello and we are talking about charles de Foucault who has become a catholic saint david wrote the forward to the book and david's also the author of numerous books including providence blue and the crucifix on mecca's front porch joe resinello
1: i want to talk a little bit about adoration that we talked about on the first segment because i think it's very important um What you were saying reminded me of the missionaries of charity because they do an hour of adoration every day. And the idea is if you can see Christ in the Eucharist, you will see him in your brother and you will serve him. And anyone can do this. Now, I have an extensive background with the sisters. Um, I always say they formed me before I got married. I was their driver for seven years in Manhattan, and I would go to adoration with them every week for seven years for an hour and it changes your perspective i think that's the answer to the world's problems david to be completely honest with you is to sit before our lord talk about how these things go hand in hand how sit you know please because i think like you said in the first segment anyone can do this and it will change you yes, yes, I, I I believe that
2: too and, and and what you just said, Joe, is a chance to kind of build a bridge that connects the life of Father Foucault with what we face in our day-to-day existence, and by that, I mean the following: that when you study the early life of Father Foucault, you note the fact that this is someone who um really uh, let's just say he wasn't simply born into sainthood, you know I mean, um there's a, a famous saying to the effect that you know every saint has a past, and every sinner has a future, okay and that applies very much to his life. So early in his life, he was someone who was pulled about by his impulses, had tremendous trouble focusing. and as soon as you hear that, I mean, how many of us can say, myself included, wow, I can see myself in that, you know? Because especially in our day now, we are surrounded by our, what we completely call devices, okay? But with emphasis on vice, I mean, because constantly what we have is, you know, limitless numbers of choices when it comes to, you know, cable TV, you know, and uh, streaming and all these other things. And then of course, you know, our dreaded uh, smartphones, so-called, you know, and w- what happens is, you know, we're constantly being pulled about, okay? So it, it becomes very difficult to focus on one thing at a time, or especially to focus on what's truly important. And this brings us back, Joe, to what you're saying about adoration, because what we need is the opportunity, the grace, Right to be able to clear enough space to be still and to be present to God, who is constantly waiting for us. You know, you, you know that relationship, it's always there, but what we have to do is to nourish it. And what Father Foucault did is something that can serve as a model for us, I think. What I mean by that is he knew that to be available for others, you have to be centered in your relationship with God. And he always made a point, in fact, as he developed this discipline, he really came to crave it. He made a point of being quiet enough and still enough to be able to feel that presence of Christ. And so his worship in the chapel the adoration before the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist—that served to steady him. That served to remind him what's most important, and and that was how he felt the strength to be available to others. Because if we don't do that, what winds up happening is there's a sense in which um, our irritability grows because the fact that you know to be available to others it means that you have to set aside whatever it is that's preoccupying us. And so it really helps if we can find a kind of stillness in prayer, because when we pray, when we make ourselves available to Christ, I think that Christ really helps us get reminded that many of the things that bother us, as important as they might seem, they're not what's most important. Prayer helps us to sort that out, being quiet enough in the presence of Christ helps to remind us, you know, those things are real, all those problems, but they're
1: not the most important thing. They're you, know, not- you said something, yeah. you, you're, you're right. And you said something before, like that Muslims would recognize him as holy just by, and I've had that experience with the missionaries of charity. I, again, I was around them. I and, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, Calcutta because that is a, a Muslim enclave. I've spent some time there. I know you've spent time in Muslim areas of the world as well. These sisters, like I've met, David, I've met a lot of people. I work on Wall Street. I, I met, I've met all types of people on this. I have never met people like that. They will make you stop in your tracks. Their eyes, like you're just like, whoa, you are holy. You are something I've never met. There's something tangible here. Don't tell me it's not. It's as real as I'm talking. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and that comes from adoration.
2: Yes, yes, very much so, and, and this is the thing, you know, um, sometimes people describe religion as something that divides us, but actually, and this is something I've often discussed with my students, religion is part of what uh, unites us, I say. It's part of what makes us human. That is, um, I mean, one thing I would argue is that all of us are religious in this sense that religion refers to the notion of instinctively um, seeking and responding to that which we experience as holy and when i say the word holy i mean the sacred that which gives pattern order and meaning to our life and all of us are hardwired that way instinctively to seek out and respond to that which is holy and i mention this because of the fact that if you live in a kind of intercultural interreligious environment, as Father Foucault did, and I mentioned before because of my own work, um, I, I've had to over the years in various countries, especially in the Islamic world. Well, then you know, if you belong to a different religion from most of the people around you, you know you want to be attuned to what do we have in common? And what what we have in common is that religious impulse. We're all hardwired to be alert to the sacred, okay? And when we, talk, when we use that word in the Abrahamic faith, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, we recognize the sacred as God, the sacred that is that wants a personal relationship with us. And that's what makes people like Father Foucault such a beacon, because, as I mentioned earlier, and as you noted, Joe, the Muslims he came in contact with, they too sensed that sanctity. And because of the fact that, as I mentioned, Islam is a fellow Abrahamic religion, they too are aware of the notion of God wanting a personal relationship with us.
0: David Pinal is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe Joe Pasillo and Joe Rucineello, and we do want to talk about um, not just Charles de Foucault, which is obviously the topic of the conversation. David wrote the foreword to the book on uh, St. Charles de Foucault, but David has also written uh, numerous books, including Providence Blue and The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch, A Christian's Companion for the Study of Islam. So let me segue from that. Now, you've, you said— David, that, uh, that you've had vast experience in the Muslim world. So um, you know, the word coexist is kind of like a, a squishy-wishy modern word that, that people use. We don't like to use that word. Uh, but but I, I guess finding some level of civility um, in these countries where they're predominantly Muslim, there are Christian communities. Uh, right now, sadly, you, know, you have Christians being not just persecuted but outright killed, in many of these countries, um, is it like, let's say, if you look at Yemen, if you look at Pakistan, if you look at Egypt, um, is it possible, like, in these in these countries, or what what would make what would make some sort of a um, a peaceful arrangement possible in these different parts of the world, where right now there's a lot of violence going on?
2: Yes, um, this is really an extraordinarily important question, Joe, and I'm glad you asked this. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I, I've actually um, had experience living and working in a number of these countries, um, and you're absolutely right that in um, a number of these societies, um, your Christians are um, facing uh, brutal persecution and sometimes um, being killed. And um, there's no it, it, there's, there's no um, easy answer to any of these questions um, it, it, what I, I guess the thing to I want to emphasize here is the fact that um, <clears throat> first of all, there are many Muslims who recognize a shared Abrahamic heritage. I want to emphasize that first of all. In other words, um, Muslims, Christians and Jews acknowledge that um, we share a common veneration for Abraham as a spiritual ancestor. And so, also the notion of one God. Now, how that one God is understood, of course, is radically different. I'm not going to paper over those differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, But talking about the shared Abrahamic uh, heritage is a way of acknowledging, um, I would say, the human dignity that's in all of us. And um, the, the challenge for us here um, when you think about the situation of Christians in these countries is that, um, it, it, well, let's just put it this way. It requires uh, a tremendous amount of courage. I have been in awe um, in these countries that I've lived in. For example, um, in working in, um, well, for example, in, in Yemen uh, years ago. I was there um, in between two of the periods of civil war <laughs> uh, back in 2009. And um, in Sana, in the capital uh, city of Yemen, um, there are no churches, okay? Um, but there is a, uh, what they call an underground or house church community. I was able to make contact with that, and um, I attended services um, a number of times while I was there. And... What struck me, and and this is, I guess, one takeaway uh, to share with our listeners, having that experience, not just in Yemen, but elsewhere, it makes you realize what a tremendous privilege it is that we have in this United States, that there there are churches everywhere and you can enter freely and worship as you like without being persecuted. And uh, one thing that I would say is that, you know, we should continually be offering up in our prayers, the remembrance asking god uh to protect these these populations the 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 courage that that they show uh, all i can say is it had a tremendous influence on me and helping me appreciate what a great privilege it is to be allowed uh to to practice uh freely and um and i would say that um you know there's no easy um political solution to this Um, i have you know taken part myself in a number of um, you, know, you know interfaith dialogues and all the rest of this, I would say you know part of the takeaway is that you realize that for Christians living in those countries, what they recognize is that the most important thing, more important than physical life is the relationship with Christ. And I met so many people who are willing to make whatever sacrifice is necessary on behalf of that. Um, then from the Islamic side, I think what is is necessary is um, for more Muslims to be able to step up and step forward, especially in countries like the United States, where Muslims, thank God, are able to worship freely themselves. That's one of the treasures of our country, this freedom of worship. And so I've often said to the Muslims that I know in the United States, you know, you guys also have to step up and start thinking about, you know, how can we rethink our relationship with Christians and with others to encourage a model of greater tolerance for other faiths, especially- David, when- let me,
0: let, I, I want to be controversial for a second. I hope sure. you don't mind when you're at the front yeah. line with Joe and Joe, you got to go into the breach. Okay. But I have a question that just popped into my head. Yeah, As Catholics, we are bound to believe certain things. Okay, we're bound by it. We have to. We must. Okay, Um, or else I think by definition you can't really say that you're a Catholic if you don't uh, if you don't adhere to those things. You know the 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 triune God, all right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's certain fundamentals. Okay, so answer this question for me, just as a a, a, you know, just as a person listening to this conversation, Um, is jihad fundamental to Islam, or can it be rejected? by an individual muslim to say now i'm not talking about the internal struggle with sin or and, and the, talking about outward jihad yeah uh towards towards others okay can yeah. that be rejected by the individual muslim i
2: think it can be now i want to emphasize that i'm speaking as a catholic
0: <laughs> no no a, and yeah, again yeah. i know the three but, catholic but guys I talking
2: yeah, that's right. And I'm glad you asked this question because I am someone, you know, who I said, you know, this is my professional area and I've, you know, lived and worked with Muslims. And um, and so I have been present at a lot of discussions, you know, and when I I have given public lectures on topics like Islam in countries like Pakistan, right, to Muslim audiences, picture that for a second, you know, and I let them know that I'm a Christian, you know, so the, the Q&A, it gets tough. <laughs> anyways. So these questions come up. And often my job is simply to uh, raise the issue and I'll get in maybe five or six words and then the Muslims will start arguing with each each other. And I can tell you that I think it is possible to reject this notion of jihad as physical warfare against unbelievers. And um, in fact, what Muslim thinkers have said to me is that there do exist resources within Islam to emphasize the notion of freedom of conscience, and freedom of conscience okay, implies, and this is what you know, I've heard you know, um, thoughtful Muslim thinkers say, freedom of conscience implies that you cannot force your faith on others. And so the notion of waging holy war against others with the idea of spreading the faith that, that is inimical to and, and contradicts the notion of, of uh, freedom of, of, of faith. And in fact, I've heard Muslims say, you have to leave that to Allah. Okay. You have to leave it to God. We shouldn't be, you know, forcing our faith on others. So I think that there is room for that. And in the end, you know, and I want to keep in mind that throughout the years that I've taught courses on Islam, you know, I say to my Muslim students, listen, you guys are the ones who are going to be creating reform within the Islamic faith. I can raise the questions, I can challenge you, but it's up to you guys to be working constructively with fellow Muslims.
0: We just, um, we probably have time, David, for one more question because I do want to leave a couple minutes towards the end. I want you to tell our audience about not just a little bit more about this book, but also your other books. Okay, so with that, Joe, um, I'm going to hand can it talk over for, for hours
1: pro- on this. Yeah, I mean, I know,
0: I know, but I, I do, I do want to give David the opportunity to talk about his other books. So we have, a, we probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of about four or five minutes left.
1: Okay. Talk briefly about how, uh, you know, Muslims can't basically grasp the suffering aspect of Christ that's rejected i'm not an expert you are i do know that that they reject that but this is my opinion and i would love for you to comment and i think it will be through our lady that muslims miriam uh particularly uh our lady of fatima that will be the greatest hand to the muslim faith talk about the rejection of suffering and their relation to miriam
2: Okay, so first of all, um, uh, listeners may be aware of the fact that um, in the Quran, in Islamic scripture, both Jesus and his mother Mary are referred to with reverence. However, the understanding is not identical. Okay, in other words, um, Islam rejects the notion that. Uh, Jesus was truly crucified and rose from the dead. They reject the crucifixion and and they reject the whole theology associated with that. Why is that? Because of the fact that um, Islam views Jesus as one of the Muslim prophets who came before Muhammad. And so um, basically Muhammad honored Jesus as a supposed prophet of Islam. But the thing to understand is that Muhammad was a political and uh, military success in his own lifetime. And so the idea of being crucified suggested political and military failure. And I think that that was unacceptable, you know, in the mind of um, Muhammad. And so the Quran, nowhere does the Quran describe Jesus as undergoing the suffering, the passion, etc., and so um, that leads to a radically different understanding of Jesus. Because for us in the Christian faith, we associate this notion of the crucifixion as an act of supreme love and voluntary suffering on the part of Christ on behalf of us. So that's a very, very important distinction to keep in mind. Um, and it is true that um, Muslims honor Mary. Um, But the thing to keep in mind is that in our Catholic faith, um, devotion to Mary and Jesus is supremely important, um, especially with regard to one's prayer life. Um, A very, very different understanding um, because in Islam, uh, Jesus and Mary, although they're honored, they're not the focal point of prayer the way they are for us. Um, In Islam, of course, Muslims acknowledge the reality of suffering, but it's usually referred to in the context of a kind of uh, test or trial that God puts us through. Uh, in the Quran, it says, "Wabtalla Ibrahimu Rabbuhu." God. Tested Abraham by means of affliction. So, usually, when I talk to Muslims about suffering, um, they will come back to the notion of, uh, well, of course, we acknowledge the reality of suffering. That's a test that God puts us through. But, you know, it's understood very differently from the way that we do in Christianity and especially in our Catholic faith.
0: David Penault joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. So, David wrote the forward to the book on Charles de Foucault, and that is the title of the book, Charles de Foucault, correct? Saint Charles de Foucault. Um, and that is available where, David?
2: That is available through Ignatius Press, and you can find it at ignatius.com or on Amazon.
0: All right so we have a couple minutes left so the crucifix on mecca's front porch a christian's companion for the study of islam obviously you know many people you know speak out against islam you know the debate muslims and everything else but we ought to have an understanding of what it is we're we're let's say um debating against so how is um so talk about that book uh, for a little bit give our audience a flavor for that
2: yes so what what it is is in one sense it's a kind of um Um, personal, spiritual, professional memoir of my experience over the decades um, studying Islam, uh, living among Muslims, studying the languages, and so forth. And so in that book, what I do is, first of all, I provide an introduction to Islam, um, but it's one that's um, written for, specifically for Christian Catholic readers. So constantly what I do is Um, I work with the sources. I translate the various Islamic sources from Arabic, Persian, Urdu, et cetera, make those available in English, and then I analyze them and um, look at them from the perspective of a Catholic, you know, where we agree or disagree uh, and so forth. And then I talk about my personal experiences working in Yemen, Pakistan, Indonesia, et
0: cetera. Okay, and Providence Blue, that book. Yeah,
2: Yeah, Providence Blue, a fantasy quest. That's a novel also published by Ignatius Press. Both of those books are. And in it, what I do is I explore um, various uh, spiritual themes linked to the notion of um, rediscovering our Catholic faith. And the way that I do that is through the life of three different uh, literary figures who intersected in my hometown of Providence, Rhode Island. That's how come it's called Providence Blue. So it follows the experiences of three characters, one. Edgar Allan Poe, uh, the Gothic poet and storyteller. Second, H.P. Lovecraft, um, the horror story writer. And the third, Robert E. Howard, maybe the least well-known of the three of them. Robert E. Howard was a, a pulp adventure author uh, best known for his stories about Conan
0: the Barbarian,
2: the lives—all <laughs> three of them—intersect in Providence, were done. And when I discovered this, I said, boy, well, this is a story that has to be written."
0: Then everybody out there should go and buy the buy the novel. Where can uh, folks buy those two books, David yes, and your mother?
2: So, Providence Blue and uh, the Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch—they're both available at ignatius.com, published by Ignatius Press, and you can also find them on Amazon.
0: David Pinal, thank you for joining us here at The Frontline with Joe and Joe. We really appreciate it. We're definitely going to have you back with you. are the type of guy we could talk to for hours, so we really appreciate you coming on. And We would emphasize to everybody out there, go buy the book, particularly the one on Charles D. Foucault. All right, it's a saint we need to know more about. And we want to thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith in the New York City metropolitan area. We'll talk to you. In, um, we'll talk to you soon. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll see you next time.